Turn your Bible to two passages of Scripture, please. Proverbs 31 and Ephesians chapter 5. Proverbs 31 and Ephesians chapter 5. Hold your finger in Proverbs 31 for a moment. And we want to look at Ephesians 5. Beginning in verse 22. We speak today concerning the home. God's word concerning a happy home. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wife be to her own husband in everything. Husband, love your wife, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, and of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. One of the interesting peculiarities about that passage is that husbands are told to love their wives, but wives are not told to love their husbands. And I guess the reason for that is when a husband really loves his wife, he awakens in her that which returns that same love. And then we turn to Proverbs 31. And a lot of times in life, we have strange ideas about what relationships should be. We get these from humanistic teachers we get these from radio, from television, from Hollywood, from the movies, from True Confession magazines. We get them from all sorts of sources except the Word of God. And then when a preacher begins to preach what the Word of God says and reads it from the Bible, some say, well, he's just uh, prejudiced. Well, today we want to examine what the Word of God says. If we were going to talk about heaven, we'd have to read what the Bible says about heaven. If we're going to talk about hell, we'd have to find out what the Bible says about hell. If we're going to talk about the church, we would need to find out what the Bible says about the church. If we're going to find out what God says about a home, about a husband, about a wife, and about a mother, then we need to find out what the Word of God says about these things and make those applications. Hannah prayed for Samuel, and he became a prophet and a mighty man in Israel. The mother of John Newton prayed for her boy, 
She died when he was seven years old. He later went to sea with his father. He became a wild young man. But he never got away from his mother's prayers. Years and years later, out on the Atlantic, in a terrible storm, after he had become involved in the slave traffic off of the coast of Africa, John was reminded of his mother's prayer. He thought the ship was going down. He went down to the hole of the ship and got on his knees before God and prayed, Lord, I remember mother's prayer. I don't remember much about what she said, but she said something about praying. And I want to get in touch with my mother's God. This was a turning point in his life. Years later, he wrote the words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was saved when he was 14 years old. He became one of the great British preachers. Some class him as the greatest English-speaking preacher who ever lived. Charles Spurgeon said, I cannot tell how much I owe to the solemn words and prayers of my good mother. It was her custom to be at home with us, and we would sit around the table, read verse by verse while she explained the scripture to us. After this was done, then came the time of pleading with God. And some of the words of our mother's prayers we shall never forget, even when our heads are gray. I remember her once praying thus, Now, Lord, if my children go on in sin, it will not be from ignorance that they perish, and my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Jesus Christ. Susanna Wesley had 19 children. She took time every week to spend one hour with each of those children. And she instructed them in the Word of God and prayer. She told them how to give their hearts to the Lord. It is no wonder that Susanna who went to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night, spending one hour with each of those 19 children every week, in addition to doing all the washing and all the taking care of the home and cooking all the meals. It is no wonder that at least two of Susanna's children, John and Charles Wesley, moved England and the rest of the world with a great spiritual impact because of their mother. In Proverbs chapter 31, there's the word of a mother to her son. And this is a tribute to a godly woman. Apparently she is saying this to her son as advice and counsel. And over and over again in the Bible, the Word of God urges sons and daughters to accept the counsel of their parents. This is a word of counsel from a godly woman.
Beginning in verse 10, Proverbs 31, Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeketh wool and flax, and worketh willingly with her hands. She is like the merchant's ships. She bringeth her food from afar. She riseth also while it is yet night, and giveth food to her household, and a portion to her maidens. She considereth a field, and buyeth it. With the fruit of her hand she planteth a vineyard. She girdeth her loins with strength, and strengtheneth her arms. She perceiveth that her merchandise is good. Her lamp goeth not out by night. She layeth her hands to the spindle, and her hands hold the distaff. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor. Yea, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow, for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. She maketh fine linen, and selleth it, and delivereth girdles unto the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. She openeth her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. She looketh well to the ways of her household, and eateth not the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praiseth her. Many daughters have done virtuously, but thou excellest them all. Favor is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman who feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. These verses from God's Word, counsel from a godly woman to her son, you might say, organize themselves into several points. Number one, the godly woman is mild in modesty. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her. He has no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She is trustworthy. She is mild in her modesty, in apparel, in clothing. The thing that is really glamorous about her is not the outside, but the inside. So much of the time today, we spend time decorating the outside. And someone said, any old barn needs a paint job once in a while. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we put all of our trust in fixing up the outside and make it elegant and beautiful, but we do nothing with the inside, then we're in trouble. For all the outside will soon pass away. It will vanish. But the inward person will remain through all eternity. And the woman was saying to her son, find a virtuous woman who is mild in her modesty, someone who is trustful, trustworthy. Secondly, someone who is majestic in service. Look in verses 13 to 19. Notice these verbs. Verse 13, she seeketh. Verse 15, she riseth. Verse 16, she considereth. Verse 17, she girdeth. Verse 18, she perceiveth. These are all progressive verbs, active verbs, reminding us of the service of a godly, virtuous woman. 
And then thirdly, she is majestic in compassion. Verses 20 and 21 and 22. She stretcheth forth her hand to the poor. She reacheth forth her hands to the needy. Not afraid of the snow, for all her household, they're all clothed with scarlet. In other words, she has compassion on other people and on her own family. And then she is majestic in influence. Beginning in verse 22. She maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk. Her husband is known in the gates when he stretcheth, when he sitteth among the elders of the land. She maketh fine linen and selleth it and delivereth girdles unto the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. The virtuous woman that is spoken of here as the godly example of a godly mother is someone who is magnificent in influence. Not so much drawing attention to herself, but supporting her husband, supporting her children. A life of service literally given to the lives of others. Most people who have heard of John and Charles Wesley do not really know about Susanna. I mentioned her a while ago. Susanna was a godly young girl. She asked God to give her a godly husband. And she said, Lord, I want to spend my life pouring my life into the life of my husband and my children. God gave her the desire of her heart. I visited her grave in London. Just an ordinary monument. And it says, Susanna Wesley, mother of 19 children. And it lists those children. And among those children, John and Charles Wesley. And then there's something like this. In burning her life, she burned out for Christ. So many times today we have a, a different thought about this. We suppose that the way to get is to gain influence for ourselves. Jesus said, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. And unless you and I are willing to die to self and die to self-glory and die to our own self's desires and invest ourselves in someone else, we'll never be what God wants us to be. This is one of the great blessings of motherhood. So many godly mothers have literally poured their lives into the lives of others, into the lives of their children. Napoleon said, let France have God good mothers and she will have great sons. John Quincy Adams said, all that I am, my mother made me. There's an old Spanish proverb that says, an ounce of mother is worth a pound of clergy. And Abraham Lincoln said, all that I am or hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. Charles Simmons said, if you would reform the world from error and vice, begin by enlisting mothers. D.L. Moody said, all I have ever accomplished, I owe to my mother. St. Augustine had a mother named Monica. Well, Monica prayed for her boy. She just poured her life into praying for Augustine. When he was a young boy, she 
felt, felt that God had something important for him to do. As a teenager, he got in rebellion against God and against his mother. He left home. He would go from city to city, and Monica would find out where he was, and she would go to that city, though never able to see him, and just be in the city and say, Lord, I'm in the very city where my son is. I don't know where he is, but I'm praying for him. And then word would come, Augustine has gone to another city, and Monica would travel over to that other city, not ever seeing her son, but just being in the city and say, Lord, I'm praying for my boy. She did that for several years. There came a day when Augustine, in revelry and drunkenness, in all kinds of sin, became restless and dissatisfied with himself. He went out on the veranda after a party, and he found a little piece of paper. And on that paper were written from the book of Romans, it is time to awake. The time of your salvation is nearer than you believed. And that was the key that touched Augustine's life. Many people have heard about that little piece of paper. But a lot of folks never knew that Monica went from place to place to pray for her boy. And the reason Augustine has made the great impression upon Christianity that he has is because of a godly mother who prayed. The Bible has a lot to say about the home. In Deuteronomy 24, 5, When a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home one year, and shall cheer up his wife whom he hath taken implying that there needs to be some quality time spent at home. In Mark 5, 19, go home and tell what great things God hath done for you. Talk about the Lord in your home. In John 19, 27, the high priority for the things of God. Jesus said to John while he was on the cross, Behold thy mother. And he gave to John the charge to take care of Jesus' mother. In 1 Timothy 5, 4, Show piety at home. If any widow have children or nephews, let them hear and show piety at home and to requite, for that is good and acceptable before God. And in Titus 2.5, the woman is to be the keeper at home, to be discreet, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Now, there are some duties mentioned about the home. In Deuteronomy 6, 7, the home is to be a place of teaching. And thou shalt teach them diligently to thy children. And thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine home, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. In Proverbs 22, 6, the church the, the, school, the, the home is to be a training school. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. In 2 Corinthians 12, 14, we're told that the home is to provide for the children. I seek not yours but you, for the children ought not to lay up for their parents, but the parents for their home. In Ephesians 6, 4, the home is to be a place of nurture. Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but 
but nurture them in the chastening and admonition of the Lord. 1 Timothy 3, 4, the home is to be a place where we're taught to be under control. A man of God should be one that ruleth his own house well. And the home is to be a place of correction. In Proverbs 13, 24, he that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him oftentimes. Proverbs 19, 18, chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. Proverbs 22, 15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Now, the Bible says there are some problems at home. There are some trouble areas in the home. Hatred is a terrible enemy of the home. In Genesis 27, we read that Esau hated Jacob. And one of the reasons is because Esau and Jacob's mother and daddy had favorites. One favored the son Esau and the other favored the son Jacob. In Genesis 31, we read about childlessness as a terrible blight in the home. Rachel had no children. It led her to enmity against others. Now many, many women cannot have children. There are many women in this room today who never had a child of your own, but you poured your life into somebody else's child. But oftentimes, childlessness becomes a burden, it becomes a terrible source of depression. Envy is an enemy of the home. Joseph's brothers hated him. They were jealous of him. Ungrateful children is a terrible problem. Absalom was probably the most handsome man in the Old Testament. But he did not regard his dad. He was ungrateful for David. And he led a rebellion against his own daddy. Contentiousness is a problem in the home. In Proverbs 21, 19, it is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. Adultery is a terrible enemy of the home. And a Probably, most men, most women do not plan to commit adultery. It just sort of happens because of carelessness. In the factories, some lady working there will sit down at lunchtime or coffee break with another man and begin to talk about her problems at home. That's a terrible problem. Pretty soon, they're interested in each other. And the man feels like, well, I can talk better to this woman than I can my wife. That woman says, well, I can talk better to this man than I can my own husband at home. And after a while, a terrible problem develops. I believe that faithfulness is far, far more than just not committing adultery. Faithfulness has to do with a man talking to his wife about the most intimate things of life. A husband talking 
to his wife about the most intimate things of life, not to others. Loyalty and faithfulness go hand in hand. Well, I'll soon be finished. I want to give you some commandments for a happy home. These are not exactly spelled out in the scripture, though they're certainly implied. There are ten commandments. Number one, thou shalt love one another. If there's to be a real happy home, it has to be filled with love. Love covers a multitude of sins. It is impossible for two people coming from different backgrounds to blend their lives into one life for the rest of life unless they love each other. And love is not a feeling, it is a commitment. It is not some quiver in your liver. Now, lots of times teenage kids think that and they sort of say, I really love you. And what they mean is, I feel physically attracted to you. But the physical attraction, as important as that is, does not stay on the same level all the time. But love does, because it's a commitment. It simply says, I commit myself to you in loyalty for the rest of time. Thou shalt love one another. Number two, thou shalt trust one another. Suspicion and jealousy are cruel as the grave. And two people must learn to trust each other and forgive each other. It is impossible for two people to live together in a world like this and not hurt each other's feelings, not make some tragic mistake along the way. And if a wife cannot forgive her husband, if a husband cannot forgive his wife, then they'll not have a happy home. Even in the cases of extreme problems, unfaithfulness, adultery, Jesus gave that as a cause for divorce. But he did not say you have to divorce because of it. He said forgiveness is much better. I've known some men who said, well, if my wife ever stepped out on me or so on, I'd, I'd kill her or I'd get rid of her. I'd never live with her again. Well, that man may not love his wife. He loves himself. When you really love the one that you've committed yourself to, there's going to be sorrow and hurt over the mistakes of life. And there will be a reaching out to say, I'm going to forgive. And I'm going to give, live in this relationship, in a relationship of forgiveness. To err is human, to forgive is divine. Thou shalt trust each other. Thirdly, thou shalt give and take. To have a happy home, it is not a 50-50 relationship. I'll meet you part way and you meet me part way and we'll just sort of glare at each other. We'll go like this. No, no. To have a happy home, there has to be a 150 and 150 relationship in which you give more and she gives more and you have a contest to see who can give the most and who can take the most. And when we give and take, God will bless that. Number four, thou shalt pull together. Now, some of you who are farmers know that we used to have teams that would draw the plow or draw the wagon. We used to have an old 
old sled. Not a sled that you'd use in the snow, but a sled that you'd put stuff on. It didn't have wheels, it just had sled runners. And some of you remember those. And we had a team. And when you'd hook a horse and a mule up, you'd have some kind, sometimes a problem. We had a horse named Lady uh, and a mule named Old Ted and tried to put them up together. And Ted wanted to go this way and Lady wanted to go this way. Never could. We'd be better off just having Lady or just Ted. But they would get together. They wouldn't pull together. Now in a home, a husband and wife must pull together. And the whole family pull together. Or else you'll never make it in times like these. Thou shalt pull together. Number five. Thou shalt confine intimacies to one another. God never expected and planned for bedroom scenes to be talked about in the open market. God never planned for a husband to go out and talk about his wife to others, or a wife to go out and gab to the girls about her husband. Thou shalt confine intimacies in the conversation about intimacies one to another. Number seven, number, number seven, Number six, thou shalt have a sense of humor. You'll never make it without a sense of humor. Be able to laugh at yourself. Laugh at your mistakes. Laugh at the things that are laughable. Have a sense of humor in life. And number seven, thou shalt not criticize one another. You know, criticism is an unbelievably tragic thing. You know, 90% of the things that we're criticized for, uh, we need to ignore. We need, to have, we need to have a plan of life that says, I will not take personally the criticisms. Now, if you're married to somebody that's always criticizing you, that's sort of tough to do. The best thing to do is to sit down someday and say, well, look, let's just have a truce. We'll wave our white flag and let's agree that I'll not criticize you and you'll not criticize me. Because criticism tears down. Criticism is negativism. It hurts. It destroys. And after a while, listen, after a while it becomes so needling that it is not forgotten. And it either leaves, leads to a poor self-image on the part of one or resentment and hatred. Thou shalt not criticize one another. You don't marry somebody to change them. You take them where they are, and of course, two people who live together for years and years and years after a while may even begin to look like each other. Their mannerisms may be alike, but you don't marry to do that. You marry somebody that is different from you. You don't marry somebody that's just like you. They never planned to be just like you. You didn't want them to be just like you. If you had, you wouldn't have married them. You married them because they're different from you. Don't criticize them and try to drag them down to build them up to your image. Take them for where they are. Pray about it. Put it in God's hands. Criticism, a tragic thing. Number eight, thou shalt not expect too much. even in the years of old age. 
The thing that drew you together was a love that you saw, not when you were with other people necessarily, but you saw a focus on one person. Cultivate that. And through the years, maintain a date life. And number 10, thou shalt have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of your home. Now the Bible has much to say about this. Without faith it is impossible to please God. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. For by grace are you saved through faith, and without faith no one will see heaven. Everyone in this room today has faith. You say, well, I don't have very much faith. Jesus said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, that's enough. That faith is a savory thing in your life. For example, earlier today, somebody went back and pushed a button and turned these lights on. They had the faith to believe that they just pushed a button, the lights would go on. You had faith today to get out in your car and turn the ignition switch. You had faith to believe it would start. Now, sometimes it doesn't start because the battery's dead. But you had faith. You don't understand all the mechanism of that. Some of you do. Most of us don't. Most of us don't understand the power of electricity. We have faith to believe. Now, I want to tell you, the Bible says that Jesus died on a cross because of our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. And when we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, He forgives us and He saves us. And He'll do that for you today. If you've never given your heart to Christ, you can do it today. By faith, Jesus can come into your heart and be your personal Lord. May we pray together. Every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment. With our hearts bowed and humbled before the Lord, I'd like to ask every husband and wife here today, regardless of your past, regardless of past problems and past mistakes and past marriages, where you are today, don't look back. There's nothing can be done about the past except to put it under the blood of Christ. But where you are today, would you say, Lord, by faith, I want to make the truths that we've heard this morning real in our home, real in our lives. Would you whisper that to God? And then would you say, Lord, I'm going to do the part that I can do. I'm going to give all I can give. I'm going to take all I can take. I'm going to refrain from criticism. I want to be what God wants me to be. Some of the young people in this room, would you ask God to make these lifetime goals in your life and ask God to guide your footsteps so that one day when you put your life in the hand of another life and you join one another for marriage and for life entwined, that you'll have a commitment that will remain regardless. And if you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, would you just simply say, Lord, I need you. I ask you to come into my heart today and be my Savior and my Lord. I want to repent of all my sins. 
Our Father, we thank you that Jesus is here today, willing to help, willing to aid, willing to strengthen, and willing to forgive. We pray that the God, the Holy Spirit, would bring conviction and that this would be a day of victory. In Jesus' name, amen. May we stand, please. Will you turn to hymn number 334? 334. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come to thee. 334. Now this is God's invitation. I want to ask you if you would just simply say, Lord, I, I need you as my Savior, and I want to confess you as my personal Savior and Lord today. Would you say that to Jesus? Wherever you are, whoever you are, would you step out from the ranks and say, by the grace of God, I want to give my heart to Jesus Christ. On this Mother's Day, 1989, I want it to be the beginning of something in my life. Would you say that to the Lord? While we begin to sing, who will step, out, step forward and come for, the, for, the, for Christ? Will you come now?